You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. Melina Labican Massimo is Lubicon Cree from Northern Alberta. On this week's episode of Earth Matters, she talks about her community's fight against tar sands mining and their initiative to install solar energy. This talk was recorded at the Coalition for Community Energy Congress. I want to acknowledge the First Peoples of this territory and the ancestors that have been buried here for time, since time immemorial, as is our custom to do in territories that we come into. Um, my name is Melina Labokan Massimo, and I'm a member of the Lubacan Cree First Nation, which is in northern Alberta in Canada, on the other side of the Rocky Mountains, uh, so on the eastern side. Gordon is from the west, and good? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm also going to show pictures because I find that most effective in trying to communicate where I'm from and the work that we're doing to transition our community to renewables. Um, but I'm going to give you a bit of a backstory first because of just to give you an idea of what communities in the northern part of Canada are up against and why we're trying to transition. And most of the time at this point doing so in Alberta, but that's slowly changing with changing policy and changing government. Um, um, doing so without the help of uh, a lot of times our local governments. So mm, very northern community, that's actually my dad in the top left. He was five years old and I was taken, I think, by some people that were coming to visit that had a camera. And it was actually when he was like I, I don't know for people that were here yesterday, but I had mentioned that he was hidden from the Indian agent from the mission schools until about the age of 10. So he was taken, this is my Kukum, my grandmother, and my Muslim, which is grandfather in Cree. Um, they would take him every fall and hide him in the bush, which we call the bush, the Boreal Forest, um, until the Indian agent would come and take all the children, and then he would come back to the community and everyone would be gone, other, all his siblings and cousins and brothers and sisters. So he was raised in more of a traditional sense because he was able to learn a lot of old stories and learned our language. Um, a lot of people still hold our language back home, which is really good because Cree is one of the largest nations in Canada, 200,000 strong. Um, but it's only three out of like hundreds of indigenous languages that are set to survive in Canada. So we're from the north, which is um, the Boreal, as I said, the, the lungs of Mother Earth. And you can see here where I was born right in this purple spot here. Um, it's called Peace River, and it is in the Alberta tar sands. Who's heard of the Alberta tar sands? Sweet. Cool. Um, not that that's it, you know, but 10 years ago when I started campaigning, people thought I was talking about tar sands, like Tarsan and Jane, like the movie. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, we have a lot of work to do because 
people think I'm talking that I work on movies, um, but I work on environmental issues. So yeah, so it's actually one of the biggest industrial projects on the planet. And it's um, if you think of this area, it's England and Wales combined. So it's a huge landmass that we're talking about are the size of the state of Florida. So it's 23% of the province of Alberta that they're trying to basically dig up. Um, this is our community, so this is our traditional territory. Little Buffalo is where my family lives, and that's the community there. And you can see our traditional territories, like the teardrop. And we've worked with, like, you know, human rights organizations like Amnesty International that's helped map out, you know, just how many oil and gas and logging and fracking and tar sands is in our territory. You can see a lot of it has been leased for development, which has been really against the wishes of the community. Um, and then, you know, in the Athabasca region, which is um, just east of us, uh, in the Tar Sands is also, they have huge mines, which are is essentially the size of cities. So Imperial Oil is, would be as big as Washington, D.C. Um, we took this picture from the air, so you can see the little dump trucks, the yellow ones, are actually as big as these buildings, so they're three stories high. Um, so they're quite huge, and it's moving a lot of land, land mass as well. Um, it's a huge area, so... You know, is this is also taken from the air. So this is in helicopters, and you can see, like, kind of how they're, they've slotted it out, and then they kind of... Basically, the reason why we're number one in deforestation in the world now is because they're basically uplifting the boreal, which is uplifting immense amounts of carbon as well um, in def the process of deforestation and to get out the tar sands or the bitumen, as they call it, the technical term. Um, and then they also do an underground mining form, which is in our area, which is many of the ways which actually has a pretty massive it does it looks better on the surface but what's happening underground is similar to fracking where you're using you know you're slurrying superheated steam so you're utilizing a lot of carbon because you have um you know greenhouse gas emissions to heat the water um and then you're like cause we use um basically using one fossil fuel to get at another fossil fuel is a lot of natural gas to get at the tar sands and superheating it to 240 or 350 degrees Celsius with chemicals interjecting into the bitumen formation and then sucking it back up. So we're using um, so a lot of water, but then also a lot of contamination. Um, these tailing ponds are as you've seen from outer space, um, so you can actually see them from space, which is really intense, and so it's cyanide, mercury, lead, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, and we're actually in a direct path, a migration path of birds from South America to North America, and a lot of these birds are landing on these massive tailing ponds, which span 180 square kilometers or more now. Um, so we're, you know, talking about impact, impacting a sixth of Canada's fresh water supply, um, which is pristine water from glacier-fed water systems uh, that are going, that are basically feeding the Athabasca Peace, Athabasca Delta, which um, goes through the, the tar sands, unfortunately, and that's being drained, and we're using three to five barrels of water for one barrel of tar sands oil. And that's really impacting indigenous communities that are very, um, we're very subsistence-based still. So we're, you know, we, I grew up on moose meat. My dad's a hunter. Um, a lot of communities are fishing people, so they're finding tumors on, and twisted spine and kind of like tumors on the carcass of the moose or on the, the animals. And this is kind of give you an idea of like this woodland fen. Uh, this is actually taken from a researcher um, that worked for a company, and this is the after of kind of what they, they're trying to say that, oh, it's, it's not going to impact the land that much, but it actually is. Um, and they're calling that equivalent land use capacity. Sure, whatever you say. So um, by 2040, the woodland caribou are going to be locally extinct or extirpated from the region, so within our lifetime. Um, so these are the types of issues 
that we're dealing with and then also massive oil spills and then I'm going to go on to the happy stuff which is the solar <laughs> empowerment um, beacon of hope but this is, uh, this is what um, happened actually in our territory where I'm from this is a massive oil spill that's actually a beaver dam and it's completely covered over by oil you can see actually in the bottom far right corner those are actually people in the, the hazmat suits in the white so this is a huge, we took this also from the air. Um, it was really hard to get up into the air because a lot of companies were hanging up on me because they wouldn't fly us over to show the amount of destruction because it was one of the biggest pipeline spills in Alberta's history at that point. And so you can see a lot of our families cleaning up the oil on the ground. And this also taken from the air, those people. And this is, um, this is actually April 29th, 2011. So it was just, you know, before the spring. So you can see this muskeg usually by the summer be green. Um, but we call it muskeg because it carries a lot of our medicines, a lot of our berries, a lot of places where we pick um, traditional medicines, like really strong immune boosters and teas. Um, but, you know, like those are areas like this are just completely gone now because they basically had to drain it and then export it, the oil somewhere else that was spilled. It was 4.5 million liters and um, 28,000 barrels. And then they just dug it all out. And so this was traditional hunting ground and places people would go and now it's gone, and this is where my family lives in this small community. Uh, this is my cousin's children, and so a lot of the children and um, our, my family was breathing in these fumes that were wafing in from the spill, um, and the government was just like, oh, no, it's not that bad, but, you know, we had, like, elders and pregnant women in the community that shouldn't have been breathing that type of, you know, contamination in, in the air, and people were getting really sick, so we called the media in, we're about 10-hour drive there and back from the main city of Edmonton, Alberta, and they were able to come up, with, luckily, the media to kind of expose what had happened because of just, like, how big the spill was. They finally covered it, because we have spills every day in Alberta, but they're not usually this big. This is after the fact. This is um, 15 months later, and this is basically the spill had, they said they had cleaned it up, but this was what we found, which was actually a dead zone. It's all black. And, you know, a lot of our elders say when you go into areas and you're, like, you know, coming and trying to drink water and stuff, like, the like little um, animals or um, little insects will, like, you know, land on the water. That means that the water is actually clean, right? Um, it's not dirty, but there was just, this, like, a dead, silent zone. There was no bugs whatsoever coming into this area. And we were pulling up goop. And so just things like that that our communities are facing. Um, so, you know, which... We've called environmental and cultural genocide because when we don't have places to gather, to fish, trap, hunt, um, and be free from contamination, it results in loss of culture, tradition, and customs, especially when it's replaced by these types of landscapes where we can't access our territory um, to live um, healthy, sustainable livelihoods. I put this map back in for the gentleman who had asked, I don't know if he's still here, but for the pipelines. So these are the types of pipelines that we're dealing with in North America. Um, the Kinder Morgan and the Enbridge pipeline and all of the different kind of refineries down below, which are cancer clusters in the Arctic Basin. And so you can see it's, it's pretty intense, the fights that we're having in North America. I'm sure you've heard of the Keystone XL pipeline as well. Um, so pipeline spills in Michigan, um, they're calling diluted bitumen spill from hell just because of the intensity of what people are, the, the repercussions of health issues. Um, so I'm going to close with just kind of to give you an idea of what, and probably a lot of people in this room might know of, you know, what 
we're dealing with in Canada and how Canada was a climate laggard for so long on the international climate negotiation scene um, with the UNFCCC and kind of being basically kind of not allowing a lot of um, progress to happen until kind of the Paris Accord, but even that um, isn't necessarily being upheld in Canada, even though the, pres- the new prime minister said so, that he would do that. The tar sands is the fastest growing source of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, and we already actually have a emission growth of 70 megatons, potentially by tw- 15 um, 15 megatons by 2030. So just to think that 70 megatons is sometimes is actually equivalent to the size of entire countries, small countries, especially in like say Europe. Um, and we're actually just in that project in Alberta alone, producing that much um, emissions in as a project, not a country. Um, so it's an immense amount of carbon emissions that we're producing in Canada, um, which is actually makes it impossible for us to meet the actual climate commitments that we've c- agreed to. Um, and, yeah, for instance, the Kinnamorgan pipeline would increase 14 megatons. So very irresponsible in the face of climate change, especially here with a lot of people so close to here being with, from small island states and um, a lot of people going underwater and dying from climate change. Um, I think it's really irresponsible for Canada to be doing that at this point in time. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. That was... Melina Labucan Massimo, who is Lubicon Cree from northern Alberta, and she was talking about her community's fight against tar sands mining. Melina has also been heavily involved in a project to install solar in her community. The Lubicon Cree have been here since time immemorial. Indigenous peoples have a very intimate connection with our homelands here in northern Alberta. And what we've seen instead is industry coming and essentially taking over our lands and really exploiting them, and it's had a detrimental impact. We see companies digging down into the earth, trying to extract the very last drop of oil. But instead, we can start looking up We're bathing in sunlight all around us, and yet we don't utilize that energy. And so that's why our community has decided to install solar. Pretty amazing to see this project go up. A lot of the community members and the young people are working, they're getting hands-on training right now. It's really amazing to see how proud people are of it and how it's, it's a community project because all of this has been through the blood, sweat and tears of the community. Well, this project matters to us because it kind of represents who we are and where we're going in the future. When you see the work, you can, I can say that I did that took part and I did it right. So there'll be a lot of people seeing it every day. I can tell people I worked on this. <laughs> I know uh, in a lot of the ceremonies and the songs, the sun is praised. Even the project name, Pita Pan, means the coming of the dawn and it's coming of a new era, you know era where we use uh, you know, energy that's not devastating to our environment. In uh, getting this solar project going, 
We are leaders in solar power, and that's what we're teaching our youth. You know, they have to learn how to operate it. They have to learn how to maintain it, and uh, they already know how to set it up. So, if any any of our neighbors in the surrounding First Nations or Métis settlements want to start a solar power, we can be there to help them get it going. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit now about what we're doing to transition um, in that context of about community-based solar. And our first initial project is is called Pitapan, which means the rising sun or the coming of a new dawn, a new era um, in our community. And this is actually a picture which is really a really happy day for us when we launched our initial solar project. It's a 20.8 kilowatt system, and it powers our health center. And this is taken from a drone, and we're doing a ribbon-cutting ceremony here. You can see in the community, um, still very remote community, but uh, was a, a process to get all the solar panels up into the community. Um, but they got up there. It was really exciting. We actually ended up doing a top-of-pole mount system because it's right in the community, and we didn't want to actually fence the community off from the solar projects. But if you think about coming into a small remote community and just putting solar panels that are ground-mounted, that would be really unsafe for the high voltage that they are. And kids um, from kindergarten to 12 go in they're actually the schools right behind this you know and those look like pretty flashy slides you know so I would say (laughs) that's why we put them so high up and it's actually really funny because we my friend um, he was a a mechanical engineer and electrical engineer helped us kind of engineer these top of pole mount system where we actually took these poles that were originally like kind of we painted them but they're actually for the oil industry and we just basically do like um kind of geoengineered them, I guess you could call it, I don't know. And we just put, we basically got welding done on the top to be able to put the racking on the, the top part and put them really high up so that we can start doing planting and gardening on the bottom part. This is really exciting. This is Carlton, who a youth um, we trained. He was 21 at the time. And he, you know, this is the solar panels in our community for the first time. Um, and they just the the truck had just dropped them off, um, and the solar installation is just over there. So he's just taking a taking a, a peek at them. It's really funny because a lot of people in the north that you still don't see solar panels as much. You, you're seeing a little bit more like really small kind of installations, or little small ones on top of lights or things like that, but not these types of big like 260 watt panels. Um, and my auntie, who is 70 now. She, she came up to me during the launch, and she was like, I never thought I would see solar panels in my life. You know, I, I just, I thought, I thought, you know, I just see them on TV. I saw them, because we have, like, satellite now in, in the community. So she's like, I've seen them on TV before, but I never thought I'd see them. You know, so it was really cool to be, like, impacting, like, elders, you know, to, to the youth that where we had young people um, kind of putting their hand imprints for the launch and, you know, putting these at the base of the solar panels so all these kids that go to school in the community, all my little cousins and nieces and nephews, um, they have a memory of being there and seeing uh, energy being produced from the sun for the next 25, hopefully 50 years. 
Um, this is the final installation, uh, and it's uh, 80 panels, yeah, 20.8 kilowatt system. So it's still pretty small, and we're actually working now to our next phases where we're potentially looking at utility scale or at least a solar farm to plug into the grid uh, so we can potentially generate revenue. Um, this, is a new, this is a new kind of era because we have a new government that's a bit more... Um, open to putting in policy that actually helps communities uh, be a part part owners in the solar projects, which is great. We own this fully because I fundraised for it, and then my nation paid in the rest of it. But yeah, so this is actually community, fully community owned. But I think for the larger installations, probably will be, unless we do something smaller where we power the health center, we it might be something where we'd find a partner and partner and you know be forty nine or fifty or fifty one percent owner. Following on from Melina's talk, we had some questions. The first was about the weather in northern Alberta. Um, this is in the summertime, so the temperature is not as hot as here. It's about, we could get up to like 28 maybe. Um, 28 degrees, but then in the wintertime it gets to like minus 40. That's, I mean, that's hot for us, but I was outside today, I was like, oh yeah. So nice. 28's cold? Yeah, well, the good thing about solar panels, I think a lot of people are like, oh, um, you know, if it's too cold, they're not going to be producing. And I'm like, no, actually, it's, it's more helpful for the panels to not overheat. So when it's so cold, um, it actually, we can still produce, but it's just, you know, the amount of sun exposure. We have a lot shorter days, so we're not going to produce as much during the, the winter time by any means, but we still do produce in the winter and the summer. Yeah, and we have really long days. We're like basically sunlight at four or five a.m. because we're so northern till like eleven p.m. Like you know, so we're like have really long days and then like really short days. Yeah. Next, Melina was asked about what happened when there was not enough sunlight. Yeah, yeah, we're grid connected, so we're not off grid, and we're propane dependent, so we're utilizing propane for heating. Um, but we're grid for we're grid connected for the health center, which is um, for the electricity and all of that. So we just switch back over. We have inverters in the health center, and so we're just kind of utilizing from the grid and then getting solar credit for the panels. Melina was asked about battery storage technology. Potentially, I think we're just kind of waiting for the technology to really fully evolve and come to market. Um, but we, we would like to. I know Gord, I don't know if Gordon, you want to talk about the diesel switch gen storage. Is, is that a storage system too, or is it just switching from diesel gen to microgrid? Okay. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't fully looked at that yet. Um, it'd be nice to, but I know it's just kind of letting it mature first and Melina was asked if there were legislative restrictions on installing this technology. Yes. So when we applied for that, it was called a micro, it's called the microgeneration application in Alberta. So each province in probably similar to here is um, the grid is the jurisdiction with, is within the province. So Gordon's is different because he deals with British Columbia and I'm in Alberta, so I deal with Alberta government. And so we at that point was under one megawatt. And with the new government, they just switched it to five. So five megawatts. So that's you know a great great increase. So we're looking at potentially applying to you know maybe do a five. But if we want to go over the five, we'll have to probably negotiate a PPA, a power purchase agreement, to get that kind of the bigger one on the grid. But we're not sure yet. They're basically opening up the market right now in Alberta because we're the sunniest province in the country. So a lot of the solar industry in North America is really eyeing Alberta because of just basically the the potential. And um, so we're still kind of looking at what are our 
options in terms of like now with the opening up of that um, legislation, should we go, you know, we'll go obviously above one meg. But yeah, so right now it's at five. Melina was asked about community engagement. Yeah, we so we were very determined not to bring in a lot of external people. Um, so we we have in Alberta, oops, sorry about that. In Alberta, we have to work with master electricians, and there wasn't a master electrician within our community at the time. There's electricians, but we have to have a master electrician um, legally to um, kind of finish the final installation. So we brought him in and his master um, electrical engineer who we worked with, and then my friend Julio, who is the mechanical engineer, and then we the, the racking, the racking. So we basically brought in like four external people, and the rest were all in-house we basically just hired everyone in the community to work with us from start to finish to like dig the trenches to do all of the stuff that everyone in the community knows how to do because they've worked so much in industry that we didn't have to train essentially people other than the young people that aren't as like you know tradesmen and then also just the racking when we had the guy that to set up like to do the racking properly and then um, we basically arranged the panels onto the racking and put all of the wiring in but then the master electrician had to do the final thing to legally for it to connect through ATCO which is the utility to make sure that it was kind of we had to you know stay on the single line diagram that we had submitted to the authority to say that this is the way that we're going to install. Melina was asked to talk about building alliances amongst community groups. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why I was really excited about coming was because not only to talk about solar, but to kind of make connections for around climate, um, people in the climate movement. So I'm going to be meeting, like I've been emailing different, um, like SEED and different um, Indigenous uh, climate organizations that I'm going to be meeting with and speaking um, also at the University of Technology in Sydney around climate issues. And so trying to just connect and then actually going to Aotearoa after and connecting with folks because we're actually going to be hosting um, people from the from Aotearoa probably in the future to come to the tar sands because of the work that they've been doing in this from the small island states um so yeah to kind of make that connection between climate and you know fossil fuel extraction and you know us exacerbating the issues of fossil of um, climate change and effect, essentially affecting communities here our prime minister um you know he was seen as like a real hero in the paris i don't know if people saw that but in the paris um agreement he you know he stood with the small island states and was like, you know, said he would commit to keeping it under two, under the two, two degrees, and, and also like even pushing for the one point five. But with this, with the tar sands, you just he can't. So it's kind of like pretty, you know, unfortunate and contradictory. Uh, so it's kind of needing to continue to hold politicians to account. And by making these types of alliances, I think that we're able to do that. The next question was about researchers coming into the community. Um. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a long history of anthropologists and kind of extractive research in our community. So there is a huge sensitivity around it in Canada and I'm sure for most indigenous communities around the world. So far, I actually haven't had um, people approach us yet because I think it's such a new installation or a newer installation that people haven't said, can we do any research on it? People wanted to profile us. They wanted to use our picture a lot in, you know, websites and kind of like the climate reality project that's um, Al Gore's like kind of project emails me and like, can we use your picture? And I was like, yeah, as long as you source it, you know, because I think the thing is sometimes it's taken out of context, like you said. And so that's the thing that I'm always kind of really sensitive about. So I think in kind of 
because we've already really experienced that um, on a lot of other kind of cultural and linguistic fronts. I think with this, I'm hypersensitive, so it's good that you flagged that because you know when people do come and approach us, I'm sure they potentially they will be a bit more sensitive to it. But I don't haven't had that experience yet because it's it's quite new and. That was Melina Labukan Massimo, who is Lubicon Cree from Northern Alberta. Thank you. She was talking about her community's fight against tar sands mining and the recent installation of a solar project. To find out more, go to Lubicon Solar, that's L U B I C O N Solar dot C A. This talk was recorded at the Coalition for Community Energy Congress. To find out more, go to c4ce.net.au. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. If you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kula Nation. Our contact phone is 0394198377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au. Thank you.